Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, uh, to the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, that is okay, because we do have paperback Bibles that are underneath the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those. This passage is on page 497 this morning, 497, Mark 14. Uh, We're going to be picking up here uh, with verse 43. Mark 14, 43. I'm going to read some words here to you here in a moment, and you can think about who this might be referring to. His teaching makes for rebellion, division, war, murder, robbery, arson, and the collapse of Christendom. He lives the life of a beast. He is to be regarded as a convicted heretic. When the time is up, no one is to harbor him. His followers also are to be condemned, and his books are to be eradicated from the memory of man. Well, it's Reformation Day, right? You know who I'm talking about, (laughs) or who this quote is talking about. That, That was written about... Martin Luther, uh, in the year 1517. This was written um, very soon after his appearance at the Diet of Worms. This was um, uh, an assembly where Luther was called upon by the authorities of his day and the church authorities to recant of his views. He had been writing books and preaching about um, the free grace of the gospel and the authority of the scriptures, as Pastor Brian had already told us about. Uh, He was affirming these truths. The church called him to recant. He refused. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. That's his kind of shining moment, most famous quote attributed to him. The response of the authorities at that time was to condemn him in no uncertain terms, as you just heard. And so as I've been thinking a little bit about Luther's life here this week, uh, it reminded me how much Luther's life resembles, resembled the life of Jesus, particularly in the book of Mark, as we have been studying this account of Jesus' life over the last year or so here at New Life. We're just going through the book of Mark and looking at Jesus' life, and there are a lot of similarities, right? I mean, Jesus and Luther, they, they both opposed corruption in the church and disputed false doctrine in the church. They both were in trouble with the authorities almost constantly, harassed and threatened by the authorities. Of course, they both insisted that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. I mean, even Jesus was pointing to Himself as the only way to be saved. Uh, Both faced death for their teachings. Uh, It was expected uh, after this paragraph was written that Luther would be seized. That's the order that was given. Seize him so that he might be burned at the stake. So Luther was looking at death And we know that Jesus has been telling His disciples that He is going to die. And another similarity is that they both faced many injustices. I mean, the things written in that paragraph are just so over the top uh, about Luther. And uh, he faced many injustices, and, and our Lord faced many injustices in His life. 
And that's what we're going to be considering today, Jesus and injustice. And injustice is, is a thing that really gets us upset uh, as we look at the world and, and we see various injustices, we, we respond with hostility toward those things. And it could be for you personally that you have faced injustices in your own life and you're still dealing with these injustices. You just feel like it hasn't been fair for you. And it hurts, and you carry this pain with you. I just want you to know that no one has suffered more injustices in his life than Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in this passage. We're just going to see these grave injustices um, being perpetrated against him. Let me be clear. I am not trying to equate Luther with Jesus. Okay, Luther was a sinner. Uh, he had many sins to be forgiven, and they all needed to be washed away in the blood of Christ, just like your sins and my sins. So, uh, not putting them on the same plane, but nonetheless, it is true that God used Martin Luther in a great way. And uh, we're going to look to Luther here to point us to Jesus as we read this passage in Mark 14. So if you're able to stand, please uh, do that. I'm going to start with verse 43, which is where we left off <clears throat> uh, last week. And uh, Let's see what this says about Jesus and the increasing injustices that he was facing as he went to the cross. Verse 43, immediately while he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. <clears throat> now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they, had, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." Holy Spirit, would you please come open our eyes and unplug our ears to hear the glorious good news of your truth in the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so three particular ways here that I think we can see uh, some injustice suffered by Jesus. They come in various forms here, and they are going to continue through the rest of the book of Mark, so we'll, we'll continue to see this. But first thing we see here is that Jesus was betrayed by a friend. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. <clears throat> so last week we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, He was uh, praying that this cup might pass from Him. He was hoping that His disciples would be praying for Him. He found them asleep. And uh, <clears throat> once He realized that His prayer, that the cup would pass from Him, that maybe there was another way besides going to the cross, once He realized that the answer was no, He said, let's get up and go. Verse 42, he's ready to go, and then we pick up at verse 43, immediately, while he was still speaking. So we're picking up immediately here in the Garden of Gethsemane. While he's still speaking, this mob arrives in the garden. 
a mob of people, swords and clubs. They were sent here by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's kind of another way of talking about the Sanhedrin, which was the chief authoritative Jewish religious uh, council at the time. <clears throat> and we see that um, it's Judas who is kind of the leader of this. He's the one who comes and, and leads this crowd uh, to Jesus in the garden. Judas would have known that the garden would have been a place that we might find Jesus because Judas had hung out with Jesus quite frequently because you notice there in verse 43, he was one of the twelve. One of the twelve. Judas was a close ally of Jesus. Judas was a friend of Jesus. He, he is one who was much closer to Jesus than, than most people. He wasn't part of the inner three um, who were brought to the garden, as we talked about last week, but he was still among, among the twelve, a, a friend, a close friend of Jesus. And here he comes in the garden with war in his heart to betray the best friend he would ever have, Judas. Now, remember back earlier in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, when the Lord's Supper was taking place and, and Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said, you're all going to betray me. Um, and, and he had one person in mind who, who was going to betray him, but he also said they were all going to betray him. But remember after that, Judas left and it says in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, that he actually went and sought out the chief priests and made a deal with them and offered to betray, to give up Jesus into their hands and receive some uh, financial remuneration for that. Uh, and so now what we're seeing is that plan being executed. And so the plan was, look at verse 44, um, the betrayer, that's referring to Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under Guard. So they obviously worked this out ahead of time. I, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to lead you. I think I can find Jesus. I think know where he is. So come on. He's probably in the garden. Let's go. And uh, I, I'm going to kiss the guy that I kiss. That, that's him. So you might say, like, why, why would he have to kiss Jesus in order to identify Jesus? And probably the answer is, you might remember last week that we realized that the time in the garden is after midnight, probably. This is, it's dark. It's dark out. Uh, they don't have electric lights. You know, dark was a lot darker then than it is now. And so to avoid any possible misunderstanding with Judas kind of pointing somebody out, Judas just says, let's just make this really clear. I'm going to go right up to the guy, Jesus, and I'm going to kiss him. The one I kiss is the man. So uh, if we can just kind of put ourselves in Jesus' shoes uh, as, as much, or Jesus' sandals as, as much as we possibly can, just to, to imagine what this must have been like for, for him. Uh, to imagine the pain that it must have been for him to be betrayed in this way, to have this former friend come, him, come to him and, and offer to him this phony greeting, right? Verse 45, Rabbi, hello, Rabbi giving this appearance like he's there to greet him and hang out with him and even expresses affection to him in this kiss when Judas has the exact opposite intent in mind. This Judas is the epitome of a two-faced hypocrite. And here he is, coming, acting like he's so interested in hanging out with Jesus and all he wants to do is turn him over. 
to be killed. Have you ever been betrayed in your life at some point? Maybe a friend, somebody you really trusted, you really thought they were with you and they betrayed you. Maybe a spouse has betrayed you. Maybe a parent has betrayed you. A boss at your workplace has betrayed you. It's painful, isn't it? It's just so disorienting to think, here's one person I thought I could trust, but I can't. So who can I trust? That's very often how we respond, right? When we've been betrayed. Who can I trust? Psalm 55 uh, talks about this kind of foretells uh, this incident that we're looking at here in Mark 14. Psalmist says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not so bad when you're betrayed by an enemy. You expected that of them. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. We hung out. We talked. We were friends. We shared our hearts with each other. And now betrayal. So, if you've suffered that, I wish I could resolve it for you and tell you why it happened. I can't. All I can say is that here we have yet another example of how Jesus in His humanity has shared all of our deepest, deepest sorrows and pains. You can know that Jesus understands what you've been through, that He is a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And Hebrews goes on to tell us that we can then find in Jesus the mercy and grace that we need in our time of need. So if you have been betrayed, let me just encourage you to take that to Jesus and pour out your heart to Him and shed your tears and explain to Him your frustrations and find the mercy and grace that you need. There, there is no better friend than Jesus. Others might betray you. Jesus won't. But he certainly knows what it's like to be betrayed because that's what's happening here. So I, I want to comment on something else here uh, <clears throat> that's a little bit of, of a tangent, but I think it's relevant to the text. And that is, I, I just want you to notice how premeditated Judas' action is. Um, notice how, again, this began back at verses 10 and 11 when he made this agreement with the, the priest and, and arranged for this sign. And, you know, some time has gone by. Judas has had time to reflect on it and think about it and, and ask himself, yeah, is this really the right thing to do? You know, I did say to the chief priest, I'd do this. But he's got time to think, yeah, I don't know. This doesn't, doesn't feel right. I think I'm not going to do it. He had the opportunity to repent. But he laid out this plan, and he followed through with it. He had opportunity to repent, but, but he didn't. And, and the reason this is important to understand is because there's, there's this, these, this twin teaching in the Scriptures that all things are planned by God, and yet we're still fully responsible for all the things that we do. And, and they're both true, right? This was all planned and decreed by God. If you look at the very um, uh, near the end of uh, this passage, verse 49, uh, Jesus says, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. What, what He's saying is, everything that's happening here is in fulfillment of the way God said it was going to happen. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. And He finds a certain comfort and poise, I think, in, in that, just knowing this is according to God's plan. But it's a frequent question asked. I mean, if God has planned all things, then how are we responsible? And if we are really responsible, making free choices, how can we say God is sovereign? I just want you to see the Bible teaches them both. 
Look at this is Luke's account. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's an even stronger way of saying it. It's been determined ahead of time that this was all going to happen, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas, you're fully responsible for what you did. Judas can't stand before God and say, hey, God, you decreed it, you determined it. I couldn't help it. It's not my fault. He's not going to be able to get away with that because the Scriptures teach both. And we see it repeatedly throughout the Scriptures and other places in Genesis 50. This is Joseph with his brothers. Remember his brothers um, mistreated Joseph in these egregious ways, and then finally they got reconciled back together. And then Joseph says, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You were evil in what you did. You're not off the hook for it, but God meant it for good. God is sovereign. And this is the comfort we can take in all of the painful things that we endure in our lives and the betrayals that we face. God is in control and He is meaning it somehow for good. We can take hope in that and encouragement in that. But let us not. We we come from a tradition that emphasizes the sovereignty of God. And rightfully so, but don't let that then lead you to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what you do. You know, don't think, well, if my house might burn down and maybe it won't. I don't know, but it's up to God, so I don't need to get insurance on my property. I mean, I can't change it. God's determined it, so what does it matter? It does matter. You're responsible. Get property insurance. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I got a test to study for. Oh, well, God is sovereign, so if I pass, I fail. I don't know. God's already determined it. It doesn't matter so I'm not going to study. No, you're responsible. If you fail the test, it's your fault. (laughs) Oh, God's going to save whoever He wants. I don't have to evangelize. God's going to do it. It doesn't matter. No, these are all unbiblical conclusions to draw. I cannot explain to you exactly how the two hold together. I know it creates tension, but the Bible teaches them both. And this passage is just a great example of that. Judas is responsible But everything that's happening here is according to the Scriptures, according to God's plan. So let's go on to uh, the second thing, the second kind of injustice here, and that is that Jesus was arrested by authorities. Jesus arrested by authorities. So we have this injustice that He's suffered from His friend, and now these authorities come uh, in verse 46, and they lay hands on Him and seize Him after they see Judas kiss the man. And so they do as they have been instructed. They, they, they seize him in order to lead him away under guard. In other words, what that means is that he's been arrested. Finally, it's happened. We've felt this tension building up through the whole book of Mark. Finally, it's happening. The authorities come and they arrest him. But there's something a little bit comical about this, the fact that it's this crowd of people. I mean, we don't know how many, but it's a crowd, numerous people, and they've got swords and clubs. I mean, why would they bring swords and clubs with them? I mean, Jesus is the most gentle person that ever lived, right? I mean, Jesus never used violence against anybody. Why, why would they come with swords and clubs? And it must be because they were expecting some kind of armed resistance. They were expecting a real fight. And so they bring their swords and clubs. And so I think Jesus kind of recognizes how absurd this is. And so in verse 49, he says, you know, I was with you every day in the temples teaching. You didn't arrest me then. <laughs> Why didn't you arrest me then, right, in broad daylight where everybody could see? Wouldn't that have been much easier instead of after midnight right now? And, of course, the implied 
answer is because it is understood that what is being done here is unjust. That's why they're coming at night. They're coming to do the deeds of darkness, literally and spiritually. My dad would always say, nothing good happens after midnight. You know, I wouldn't push that too far, but I mean, there's not a lot of good things that happen after midnight. This is after midnight, and, and these guys are up to, to no good, and so Jesus recognizes this. And, and yet, nonetheless, something happens here in verse 47, that one who was with Jesus, one who stood by there, actually did offer some resistance, draws a sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Now, whether his entire ear was cut off or maybe a part of his ear, maybe his ear lobe, that, that's, that's possible. Uh, but, um, but this resistant act happens. Now, there are some things that Mark doesn't tell us here. We have to look to other gospel writers' accounts of this same situation to fill in some of the, the blanks. John 18.10 tells us the servant was a guy named Malchus. John 18.10 also tells us that the guy who drew the sword was Peter. So we're not surprised at that, just knowing how spontaneous Peter could be in his life, totally consistent with his personality. Uh, but we also see in Matthew 26 that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God does not depend on the weapons of man. The church, the kingdom, spiritual progress is not made through violence. We don't fight back in this way. We don't use weapons to convert people. We don't coerce and force people to be Christians. I mean, that's happened in history. <laughs> but we understand that that is unbiblical, it's improper. It's only the Holy Spirit that can conquer a rebellious heart. So we look to the Spirit today. We can't force that on people, but still this passage, it does raise lots of questions, doesn't it, about how to respond to injustices and how to respond um, to, um, or how do we act in occasions where we might be tempted to, to use force. And so, you know, I, I'm getting into a whole different topic here, but I, I think it's, it's worth just commenting on briefly here. I think it's helpful to, to keep in mind the difference between church and state here. Keep in mind the difference between the church and the state, because it is true from the Bible that God does give to the state the right to use force in some situations. The sword is given to the state, so we see that in Romans 13, right? Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay, we're speaking about rulers, so governmental leaders of the state. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword. That's, that's a weapon. He does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here we see that the state does have a God-given right to use weapons to avenge wrongdoing. Now, that raises lots of questions about what qualifies as good, what qualifies as wrongdoing. If I could just make this comment, so, um, you know, we've all been paying attention to what's going on probably in, in the world, 
and, and maybe you know about the, the, the war going on in Israel right now, and uh, you've heard about the atrocities that were committed there. This is a super complex issue. I'm not pretending to resolve it. I'm not even pretending to understand it all, and I don't think any of us does. But I think one thing we can say is that a nation like Israel has a right to defend itself. I think we have to say that. According to Romans 13, they can seek to avenge wrongdoing. And there is a, a statement by the ERLC. It's um, a ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention. A lot of people have signed it. You can go online and find it. But here, here's an excerpt from that. In keeping with Christian just war tradition, we affirm the legitimacy of Israel's right to respond against those who have initiated these attacks as Romans 13 grants governments the power to bear the sword against those who commit such evil acts against innocent life. Furthermore, we recognize the dignity and personhood of all persons living in the Middle East, that's Jew and Palestinians alike, and affirm God's love for them as well as His offer of salvation through Jesus Christ to all people. So, you see the distinction here? What they're saying is Israel has a right according to Romans 13, to defend itself, but then there's another kind of battle going on. It's a spiritual battle that is only won through the gospel. And as Christians, th 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 that, th those are the weapons that we use. We, we rely on the weapons of the Holy Spirit, the weapon of the Word of God, the weapon of, of prayer, the weapon of the gospel. As Paul says, uh, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believes. And we read here also in 2 Corinthians that we walk in the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our welfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's very important to keep, keep these things uh, separate and distinguished. We don't rely on the sword as a church, but nations have a right to, to use it. So, sorry if that's raising something that is uh, maybe creating more questions than it answers, but... Uh, I, I want to encourage you to try to think biblically and theologically about everything that happens in the world. I don't want you to come here on Sunday morning and just think, well, this just has to do with my own personal relationship with Jesus. We need to think biblically about everything. And there are major things happening in our world. So let's, let's think of it as best as we can according to God's truth. All right, so number three here. Last thing, Jesus was <coughs> abandoned also by His disciples. The last here injustice, at least in this passage. Um, remember that Peter said he wasn't going to deny Jesus. Remember that a few sermons ago. When he said that, you might remember that it was indicated that all the others said the same thing. All of the disciples said, no way, Jesus. I am not going to betray you. I am not going to deny you. And then you look at verse 50. And it's just such a, it's a small verse, but really it should be startling in the context of the, of the whole narrative here. They all left him and fled. All the disciples who said they would never abandon Jesus fled. And then the passage ends with this very peculiar incident, verses 51 and 52. We've got this young man, he's, uh, he's been following Jesus, lots of questions asked about who this young man is. There are many theories. You can read commentaries that say different ideas. Some say it's Mark. This is Mark's way of saying uh, in a uh, kind of cryptic way that this was me. Maybe, maybe, but 
Honestly, we don't know. We don't have enough biblical evidence to, to draw a confident uh, decision on that. But it, it's some young man, he's following Jesus. Apparently the authorities are trying to seize him also. And when they lay hands on him, he, he is just so panicked that, that he runs away and leaves his clothes behind. Runs away naked. Um, do you remember that song, The Streak, from 1974? This is going to date some of you. Ray Stevens. Uh, I looked it up. That song actually went to number one, which is just hard to understand. Um, Jesus, come quickly, right? I mean, uh, number one. Uh, so, you know, it was about, it was kind of a trendy thing to, to run around naked at, at that time. You see it sometimes in athletic contests. I'm going to run out on the field uh, naked. It's called streaking, and there was a song about it. Um, and so I think here is probably the first recorded act of streaking uh, in, in all history. This young man who leaves behind his linen cloths and, and runs away naked. Now, um, it is kind of funny to, to think about it. I, I really don't think that Mark's intent, though, in, in including this was to be funny. Um, I, I think the reason that Mark included this here was likely to expose the futility of all human attempts to save ourselves. He, he is pointing to how ridiculous it is for any man, woman, or child to think that we are sufficient in ourselves to be faithful to God and to earn our way to, to salvation, even to live up to the standards that we set for ourselves. The, the result of us thinking we can save ourselves is embarrassment. If we think we can save ourselves, if we think we're good enough before a holy God, if we think we've done enough, if we think somehow we have reached God's holy standard in our life, if you think that, you ought to be embarrassed. It's an embarrassment. I mean, here we are, 2023, we're the enlightened human race, and we're on the cusp of another world war, it seems like. We still haven't figured it out. What an embarrassment. And here's this guy running away naked. It's just a testimony to humanity's futility in saving himself. And so everybody's left him, even this young man. And so who is left? Jesus. That's it. There's Jesus all alone. If we're going to be saved, it's going to have to be something Jesus does all alone. It's going to have to be His work alone. You can't help Him. I can't help Him. There's nothing we can add to what He has done. It's not Jesus plus our best efforts. It's not Jesus plus the sincerity of our hearts. It's not Jesus plus being Presbyterian. It's not Jesus plus getting baptized. It's not Jesus plus voting Republican and having the right political position. It's not Jesus plus anything except your faith and trust in Him. He's the only one who can save you. Acts 4 tells us very clearly there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, it's been said already, and it's, it bears being said again, a, a great Reformation word is alone. That really captures the essence of the Reformation. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 
And that's how this passage leaves us. This is how Mark leaves us, Mark leaves us here in verse 52. Uh, Jesus alone, but that's enough. Jesus is enough. So, if you're trusting in something in you to earn God's favor, I would encourage you to repent of that. Put your faith entirely and completely and fully in what Jesus has done in His life, death, and resurrection. And even though He was treated with such injustice, He is actually the one who is just through all of it and also the justifier of those who have faith in Him. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You so much for the way throughout the ages you have preserved the purity of the gospel through us. Thank you for those you have raised up to do that. Father, give us a deep appreciation for it. And Lord God, help us as we seek to trust and depend on you alone for our standing with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.